Everyone, welcome to the Midweek Podcast presented by our friends at Yoshimer R&D. I'm Don Maeda and I'm joined today by uh, my buddy Steve Piatoni of Shock Therapy Racing and also uh, one-time Clydesdale SML 450 shootout test rider, right? Yep. So uh, um, Steve is a the owner. Shock Therapy is a Southern California-based uh, suspension shop, but also mechanics work and kind of anything that people kind of bring to you anything on a dirt bike we pretty much do it all okay from engines high performance stuff whatever prep wash anything would, would you say you started out though as a suspension specialist um i started out just just mostly doing suspension i pretty much do it suspension but when once people found out i was basically a mechanic mechanically then it was like oh well you well, my bike's there can you do a top end and then it's just turned into can you do the bottom and, you know, just turn yeah. into doing everything? Yeah. Okay, so let's go back to the very start. My first memory of you is working at Pasadena Honda in 1986, 87. And, uh, well, correct me if I'm wrong on the years, but my first memory of you is seeing you in the MSR, Malcolmsville's yep. catalog. Going, oh, Steve Piatoni. Who's that? I wonder if I see that guy. I saw you around, but um, I was talking to Dahmer, and I guess you had a really uh, extensive local pro racing career back in the day. Well, yeah, I started racing in the 80s. By, I think in 1982, I turned pro. Mm -hmm. And I pretty much gave myself like a couple of years to see what if I could actually do anything with that. Yeah. And I got to a point, and I mean, I trained and rode, like, rode every day, you know, because Saddleback was right by where I lived. So I was there every day, yeah. rode, trained, and I kind of got to a point, and I couldn't get any better. So at that point, I figured, you know what, this isn't, I'm not going to make it. Hmm. So I sold all my bikes, quit racing. Really? What, you, what went, year did you sell your bike? That was probably 83. didn't last very long because, you know, you drive by a motorcycle shop, you see it on TV, and it's in your blood. So the next yeah. thing you know, you're at the shop buying another bike. And then I came back, I think, in 1984 or 85, just as an intermediate, doing mm -hmm. all the Golden State stuff. And I did all that for years. Yeah, that's just when, stayed I, in that's the intermediate when I level. spotted yeah. you at first. But I was only a pro for a short time. I gave myself like a time period. And tried really hard at it. And, you know, I was back there. I turned pro at the same time with Mickey Diamond. We kind of raced together. But I saw him get better and better and better and better. And I stayed the same. So yeah. I'm like, eh, I'm not going to. This isn't, you know. I met my, I pretty much felt like I was where I was going to get. Peak, yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay, but in the 80s, around that time, uh, you could make a living as a local pro, right? Like, because there was, uh, you know, Ascot was Wednesday or Friday nights or whatever. And then. Yeah, I there pretty was, much did. I never, I never did the Ascot thing, but I did Friday night Coronas, you know, Saturday. I had some Thursday night OCIR, mm -hmm. did that sometimes. I did mostly a lot of Saturday Saddleback, you yeah. know, then Sunday, wherever CMC or CRC kind of was. And I made a little bit of money here and there, but no, not even, you know. Of course, back then the pro class was different. You'd go to Saturday Motocross, and it'd be like, you know, 25 pros. Yeah, and yeah. it was like Bob Hanna and Jeff Ward. And, you know, it wasn't like now. It was like, if you got 15th, you're like, oh, yeah, you're excited. Yeah, yeah. But, Did you ever, uh, 
Did you race against my brother, Ross? I, I raced against Ross. I remember riding with him. Mostly I remember him testing because... Yeah, he was heavily involved with KMB. Yeah, when Ray was my ex-brother-in-law, was the Suzuki team manager, I had a broken femur at that time, so I had nothing to do. So Ray used to say, hey, we're going testing here, we're going testing there, come out and hang out. And I used to go hang out. That's how I met your brother. Okay. Mostly because he was out testing, he was doing the Suzuki stuff, and that's really when I met him. Yeah, it's crazy that, uh, like you said, back then pros raced and the gates were full, right? Mm -hmm. Because like even now, like the Swap Motor Race Series, we have a great pro turnout. There's like over 10. But it's like pros don't race. Like, And then even like guys like Alex Ray, right? I'm like, he's retiring from national competition. I'm like, hey, just smash a bunch of local races every weekend and make some, some money. good pocket change, right? Oh, no, no, no. But it's like, why do you think it's changed? The, the I, don't know. I, don't, I don't know what they do when they're not racing the nationals because, yeah, you're right. Back then, when I went to Saturday Saddleback, it was like, I mean, I distinctly remember we were always first moto, and we were all, you know, I, I tell people the story, and they're like, no way. When I remember at the writers' meeting, I say, okay, pros, first race, you know, 22 laps. Yeah. It's 45. 22 laps. It's 45, oh, my God. 45 minutes. Wow. 45-minute motos. For a local and you would, race. Yeah, you would line up, and there, it, was, it would be like an everyday, every weekend thing. You'd see, like, Hannah and Jeff Ward and mm -hmm. Jeff Jennings, and there was all these guys, you know, Jim Gibson, Scott Gilman. There was all these wow. national caliber guys there. So if you got mid-pack at 10th or 15th place, you felt like you were accomplishing something. Yeah. Um, there was a few races where I actually, I don't know what got into me that day, but I actually was up there with those guys. Uh -huh. But it only happened a couple of times. I don't know. I guess I had my Wheaties that day or something. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny going out. But yeah, now, now I wonder, because you never see those guys at yeah. a normal race. Yeah. So I don't know what they do. Well, I think, you know, like, you know, I mean, even thinking back to practice days, right? Like guys like, Right, right after he won the Supercross Championship, Jason Anderson, Glenn Helen got taken out by someone and missed the whole outdoor series, right? Like, yeah. I guess, are the stakes higher now? You can't afford to get hurt at a local race? or yeah. It's just beyond me, you know? Yeah, like, even the local pros don't really race every weekend or every chance they get. Because, uh, you know, I love hearing Ross tell me stories, you know? And I remember he was telling me when he lived in an apartment in Gardena, like, he needed rent. And he's like, oh, man. And he scraped together all the money he had. He didn't have enough for entry fee. And he, like, went to the big jar with coins yeah. and, and got coins. And he knew he had to, like, you know, get pay payback to pay his rent. Yeah. And I, he told me that story. I was like, oh, that's so cool. And, I mean, not knowing because I was a little kid, he told me that. I was like, how stressful must that be, right? Exactly. And I can't imagine. Look at back like guys like Ron Turner. Yeah. I mean, Ron Turner would go and he would race. Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday, and yeah. Sunday. And he would ride all three classes when he was at Saddleback. Yeah. He, would ride, he would win the 125 class, the 250 class, the 500 class. On his Kajiva with his <laughs> yeah, elbows like, taped down. <laughs> yeah, you just don't see that anymore. Yeah. And I don't I don't really understand. I guess maybe they – I think the pros nowadays are – they're. I mean, like the local pros could kind of keep up with the – like the Jim Tarantinos and there mm -hmm. was guys like John, Jim Tarantino, Juan Ben back in the Saddleback days that they could battle with – yeah, the other guys, but now I think the the main factory pros are just so much they're at a whole different level. Mm -hmm. Okay, so you uh, you gave yourself a set amount of time to make it as a pro, right? That's pretty that's pretty mature for you guy. That's you're probably in your teens or early twenties, right? I was eighteen. Yeah, eighteen to say I'm going to give myself this much time to well, make some it. of that had to do with my dad too. <laughs> 
Because my dad said, you know, because my family has owned businesses. So I worked for my dad as an auto mechanic. My family still owns automotive garages. And, um, and my dad kind of said, okay, well, you can take a year off work. We'll pay you still and mm-hmm. go see what you can do. Yeah. And after that year, it was like, okay, now you got to make a decision. You want to keep doing that or are you going to come back and work and mm-hmm. make money and go to school and whatever? So that's what I decided to do. Okay, so all of this uh, mechanical knowledge that you have right now, is it acquired just from years of racing yourself and working on your own bikes? or? Yeah, and that's how the whole suspension thing started too. Because I was auto mechanic by trade, you know, so I'm, I'm very mechanical. Mm-hmm. You know, engines on a motorcycle are nothing compared to a car. Yeah. So, and, and actually when I worked for my dad, before I quit doing that and started shop therapy full time, I was the fuel injection guy. So I did all the diagnosing of fuel injection mm-hmm. computers. So I understand how the bikes work. I understand mm-hmm. the sensors. I understand, you know, I haven't really got too much into mapping yet. I would like to do that. But I, you know, engines are pretty easy for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and the suspension thing started because when I was a pro, I was constantly breaking my bikes, you know, like foot pegs would break off and everything would break because my suspension would always bottom out. Mm-hmm. So I had a local, I won't mention any names, but I had a local shop at the time doing my suspension, supporting me, who's now a big famous suspension place. Oh, I can guess. And, um, and the bike always bottomed out, always bottomed out. I was breaking pegs off, all kinds of stuff. So then I met this, I was at... Lavard and Underwood in La Habra one day buying parts because I was riding a Honda, mm-hmm. buying parts, and I was telling them that, and the guy overheard me talking, and the guy ended up, oh, bring your shocks over to my house. I'll fix them up. So I'm like, okay. The guy lived right down the street from me, so I, and he was a hydraulic engineer, and i sure a lot of people know him. His name is Bill Thomas. Okay. So he, I would go over his house, and he took my shock apart, and he's like, oh, I can't believe they did this. I can't believe and I didn't, understand, I didn't understand shocks. He got yeah. on the phone with the guy that did it, was yelling at him, don't do this and don't do that. You're going to kill somebody, you know, on and on. So he fixed it and it worked great. The bike worked great. I never had a problem with it again. Mm-hmm. So then I would just go over his house and he basically taught me how to do suspension. Okay. And it was just his hobby. He yeah. was a hydraulic engineer, worked for the airlines, built hydraulic rams for landing gears on commercial airliners. So he was an engineer. So he basically taught me how to do suspension. And then... Um, I just kept doing it and was very interested in it. So I just kept doing it, experimenting, and then my friends would say, hey. And then being a rider, you could have an idea for something, valve it, and go see what it did, right? So I gave you a deeper understanding than a... Yeah, I did all my own testing at first on my stuff. Mm-hmm. And um, whenever I have someone come to work for me, I go, you know, ask questions. Because if it can be broken, I already broke it. <laughs> I broke it. I blew shocks apart. I had all, you know, because I was experimenting. I was playing yeah. around. I was learning. So now I've pretty much done all those problems a long time ago. And then once I got my bikes working really good, then it was my friends. Hey, can you fix my bike? Can you do my bike? Then their friends. Mm -hmm. Next thing I know, I'm all, hey, you know what? I enjoy doing this. And I'm going to talk to my dad. My dad um, at our automotive garage gave me my, he said, oh, we don't use that part of the shop. Turn that part of the shop, you know. Oh, nice. So then I started doing it full time. And then it just grew from there and I've been doing it ever since. Okay. What year would that have been? That was in 1987 is when I pretty wow. much quit my dad's job, quit my mechanic job, yeah. and started doing shock therapy full-time. Okay, wow. So uh, I remember the logo. I think Wilkie designed it for you, that, that, yeah. that guy holding the shock. Yeah. How did you come up with the name? Like, obviously, shock therapy is what they treat insane people with. But. Well, 
I was sitting, I was actually at the river. My cousins actually came up with it. One of my cousins actually said, hey, you work on shocks. Why don't you just call it shock therapy? So that's kind of how yeah. the name, it was just we were sitting around at the river one day, and that's how the name came up. And then how that how that guy's face came up is me, Scott Wilkinson, who was the designer at MSR that, yeah. at the time, and um, and Don Upton were out having lunch one day. Mm-hmm. And Don back then was, um, I was doing his suspension stuff, and he had his hair all spiky. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Scott, on a napkin, drew that face. And that's how that all became. So he <laughs> drew that awesome. face. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of neat. And, he, so, yeah. and then I kind of, I still use it. I've been using it ever since. You brought it back. It was gone yeah. for a little while, Yeah, right? for a while I took it back. Then people, hey, what happened to the face? And then, so then I kind of been using it still. Yeah. And now I'm on the verge of kind of, maybe not using the shock therapy name so much anymore. STI, I think. Or STR, STR, which yeah. means shock therapy racing. But Yeah, there's because a, it pigeonholes you in the suspension. That, and there's a there's a shock therapy that opened about 10 years ago in Arizona. Oh, okay. And they're that. really, really, really big. I mean, uh-huh. They have a semi. They go to Glamis. But all they, they don't do motorcycles. Quads. They just do UTVs and okay. trucks. Okay. But now I, I notice people always... Oh, I thought you guys only did UTVs. It's ah. like they're over, kind of overshadowing me. Okay, well, hey, this is a great opportunity. This is Steve Piatoni. Yeah. STR. So I am going <laughs> to change it to STR Motorsports. Yeah. And okay. I'm actually, per, Ryan Persley is making my new fork stickers. They're going to be STR. Oh, that's cool. And we're going to kind of try and get away from that. Mm-hmm. Because now everybody, and it's funny, I didn't realize it, but I've had customers of mine tell me, hey, you know, you people always see my bike and they don't even realize you do motorcycles. And I'm like... What do you mean? Because they they associate oh, me yeah, with that yeah. with the big shop in Arizona. Yeah. So you named it Shock Therapy and just started it, like like when we did Salt Moto Live, right? We yeah. got that off the ground. I had I had the uh, benefit of a trademark attorney that looked in all this and yeah, yeah. It was like it's crazy the things that are registered out there, you know, like yeah. uh, you know well, even you know Rich Taylor does X Brand when he launched X Brand. He's all, who's going to name it that? And then he found out that the X was trademarked, so that's why he's EKS. Yeah. And then his son, Zach, started uh, Dirty Bird Active, which is a mountain bike sunglass division of X-Brand. Mm-hmm. And he found out the, the 11th hour that Dirty Bird was trademarked by a radio station or something. So he spells with a D, D yeah. Bird. Well, I think but, what's weird is, I mean, they're big. I mean, and they haven't trademarked the name either. Really? There's, there's okay. actually a shock therapy um, suspension company in Canada, mm-hmm. and there's actually one in Michigan that oh, wow. does mostly snowmobiles. Um, so there's quite a few of them, even though I'm the original one. Mm-hmm. You know, and I have heard that since I'm the original one and I can prove that I've had the name for 30 years, yeah. if it came down to it, I would I would get it. Yeah. But, you know, and then I hear that it's really hard to trademark a name because they just have to change it a little bit. Yeah. Like mine, shock therapy racing, their shock therapy suspension. Mm. But what they're trying to do is they want my website because I actually own shocktherapysuspension.com. Yeah. So they want that because I keep that. That's why I do I do UTVs also. Mm-hmm. So not at, not to the extreme of them, mm-hmm. but so they called me one day trying to, you know, they wanted to buy it off me and I, they didn't offer me near as much money as I wanted. But well, no, I've had that I've had that website for you know twenty years. Yeah. So I'm not going to just give it to you <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely so not. so they kind of made me a dealer and they kind of hooked me up on springs and spring kits oh, and whatever, well, whatever i need yeah. for utvs yeah to do UTVs. um how different is it working on suspension for vehicles other than motocross bikes because i know you know ross and his 
working at KYB, I remember he had to go do some snowmobile stuff once, and he's like, dude, this is like three valves, three shims in that thing. Like, stuff's real primitive compared to motocross in some aspects, right? Like, yeah. like I always want to, dude, you need to start doing mountain bike stuff. And he goes, that stuff's ignorant. But, I mean, when you're doing UTV stuff, I would assume a UTV shock is quite complex. I wouldn't say it's complex. I would say motocross bikes are the most complex of all mm -hmm. the suspensions. Um, the Walker Evans and the Fox UTV shocks are identical to a motorcycle shock. There, okay. There's no difference. They mm -hmm. have the same basic piston design, same basic rebound stack, same basic compression stack. They're basically the same, just bigger. Mm -hmm. um, and then you get into the ones that are electric, you know, the Fox. Now they have that fly-by-wire. Yeah. Thing. And all, all it is is they just took the compression clicker out that you do manually, and they just got an electric servo that goes in there. So yeah. all it does, it doesn't affect the valving or anything. Mm -hmm. All it does is automatically adjust the clicker. Yeah. is basically all it does. As you're driving, though, right? As you're driving, yeah. yeah. You have on the fly, you can soft, mid, hard, or whatever. Mm -hmm. Now they have it, I guess, where it senses and changes itself. But that's just like changing the clicker. It doesn't really do anything internally with the shock. Yeah. Um, the ones that are really primitive still are the, the street bikes. The street bike stuff. You take the street bikes. Like, you'll take a GSXR, you know, 1000 that you'd think is the... You know, they have all this coating on the outside, and they're all fancy. Yeah. You take it apart, and you're all, this looks like an 86 CR2. You know, <laughs> it's like way, they're like way behind yeah. on as far as valving technology, size, pistons, all mm -hmm. that stuff is way behind the motocross bikes. Okay, uh, talking suspension. So you've been at it 30 years, right? So you've seen the, uh, the upside-down fork evolution. Mm -hmm. um, what, what has been the biggest breakthrough and motocross suspension in your opinion through the years well first it was the cartridge you mm -hmm. know because they went from dampener rod which was just a, a metal rod with some holes in it so basically you're just creating dampening with an orifice mm -hmm. which can only create perfect dampening at one specific speed so that's not a very good system so then when the cartridge came out that was revolutionary because now you have valve stacks now you have you can control the speed of the oil through the whole range of speed. Mm -hmm. And then I would say, I have to say the biggest development, which is obviously still used today, was the twin chamber design fork. Mm -hmm. The closed chamber twin chamber design fork is by far, and in fact, that's still what they use to this day. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think Suzuki was the first to come out with it in what, 90, in probably the, the mid to late 90s. And then mm -hmm. Honda, Honda followed in, oh, I think Honda came out with it in 97. Suzuki came out with it, I think, in 94, 95. Mm -hmm. So it's been around for a while, but they're still, you know, they've improved upon it. They've made the cartridge bigger. They've made the rod size different. They've improved upon it, but it's still basically the same design. Mm -hmm. How did uh, business and or development change for you when everyone went air fork? Well, the air forks were... Uh, <laughs> I'm not a big fan of the air fork personally, oh, yeah. hey. but um, I'm in that club. You know, the, the PSF one air fork was pretty simple because mm -hmm. it was a basic cartridge twin chamber design fork. They just used one air pressure, low air pressure, you know, 35, 30 pounds. It was a basic, it had a big long negative spring that would help control the first half of the travel to mm -hmm. make it initially softer. And it was a pretty simple design. And then, you know, Showa has to get in the picture and make that triple chamber. SFF. Yeah, the triple chamber thing, which yeah. was just. You know, you really had to understand it, and which most people didn't take the time to understand it. Yeah. 
and you're constantly have to mess with it because it changes so drastically through temperature, through anything. Throughout the day, first, second Throughout, moto. Yeah. yeah, exactly. It could change. I mean, if you set it in the morning and then all of a sudden it goes from 80 degrees to 100 degrees, well, the fork Super totally stiff. changes. <laughs> yeah, and then you got all these chambers that do different things. And it was, it was kind of, unless you really knew what you were doing, mm -hmm. that fork was just a nightmare. You know, it's funny because even PSF1, when it first came out, I was like, dude, the average like nerd doesn't check his tire pressure when he rides. You think he's going to check his four? And it's funny because I said that, right? And then this was when we were still at Transworld. And it was right around the time Don Wilson came on as our publisher. Mm -hmm. And I remember he rode my bike one day. He's like, oh, why, why is your bike handle so much better than mine? And he had a Cowie. And I was like, what pressure are you running your forks? And he literally went, what? <laughs> I mean, he knew it was air fork, but he never checked it. Yeah. I mean, he never said it once. And there was like 12 pounds in his fork or something. It was way down. But, yeah. Um, so when the air fork first came out, remember there was all this stuff because uh, on social media, on the internet, like pictures of bikes like collapsed and everything. Like, uh, did you ever experience that? Have a customer come to you with a catastrophic failure like that? Oh, yeah, I had a guy go over the bars and got hurt because he landed actually at Paris and the front end just went whoop and locked down mm. because the, the car, the, the, if the lower cartridge seal would go bad, it would put all the air into the wrong part. Yeah. And he would, he would either make the fork, depends on which part the air went into, it would either make it super stiff and it would stay up and it wouldn't move yeah. or it would lock down and it wouldn't come up. <laughs> and so, yeah, they had their first problems with most of it was seal related. The inner seals weren't holding up yeah they, then they got they got way better with that mm -hmm. you know i know skf came up with a seal kit for the triple chamber ones that really helped and mm -hmm. they pretty much solved even even the first ktms had problems with that with those seals going bad mm -hmm. which either the fork would lock up all the way or lock down all the way but you know i know ktm has stuck with the air fork for a long time but they got yeah. they got pretty dialed this, their yeah. air fork works good it's funny because we'll ride the new bikes and we were we're heavily into 24 Austrian bike testing already and it's like I've become so used to the way they feel on those bikes I'm like yeah yeah it's pretty good you know like they're not offensive like the triple I used to call it the show a triple fail fork but those were offensive to me I hated yeah. the way they felt um okay so shifting from air or it's still relative to air especially as the KTMs are concerned but what's your opinion of single function forks well the single function forks were good. Like I know they make spring kits where you can just put the one spring in the mm -hmm. air side of a KTM, and it works good. I mean, it works good. And and I think Suzuki, I think and Honda used it. Suzuki used it in thirteen and fourteen on the mm -hmm. RMC. And other than the valving being way too stiff on those forks, once you got them valved right, they actually mm -hmm. they actually were pretty good. And actually, one of my favorite bikes was one of those bikes. And I just it took me a while to get the valving because they were so overly valved. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a, you know, I know they're not really doing it anymore. Uh, you can buy kits to do that. Mm -hmm. But I prefer, you know, two springs, one on each yeah. side. And, you so know, all the, the, all the kits they made to convert the KTMs, either the KYB conversion, the, the new WP6500 kit, mm -hmm. those, are, those are really, really good conversions if you don't want to deal with the air. Yeah. But the actual air fork can be made to work good, but mm -hmm. you still got the issues of you have to make sure you check the air. Yeah, all the time. Yeah, you know, I still just like you said, I still have guys with KTM's come in and I ask them, I'm like, well, how much are you run? 
I don't even have a pump. What do you mean air? <laughs> it's like they've had this bike for a while and they don't even have a pump. Yeah. I'm like, well, how do you? <laughs> yeah. So they don't even have a clue. Yeah. You know, and that, well, that's bad because they don't realize the fork can actually work pretty good. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's ever going to have the front end feel of a spring fork or the, you know, I think the spring fork gives you a little bit better feel of the tire. You know, you can feel the tire, you get a little bit better front end feel. Mm-hmm. But the air forks do, you know, they've come a long way. They're actually not too bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Going back to the mechanical side of your business, you know, you start working on bikes and everything. Did your non-suspension, like engine-related work, go really take a spike when the world went four-stroke? Because I know personally, mm-hmm. right? Like I, I used to, I'm out of practice now, but I, I could do a top end in a couple minutes, you know, under an hour yeah. easily. And I've even split cases and worked with the, the transmission before. Dude, I don't even know how to adjust valves on a four-stroke because my, my, what I imagine is taking the valve cover off and springs and shims shooting out everywhere, right? Well, it definitely, a lot of people, you know, you're right. A lot of people in the two-stroke days were willing to do their own top ends, mm-hmm. you know, because you're right. It wasn't that hard. You know, especially on like a case read motor like a 125. I mean, basically oh, yeah. four bolts and the cylinder comes off. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's sim- it's pretty simple. Yeah, the four strokes people, um, which is good for me. People are like they don't want to adjust the valves. They don't want to mess with trying to do a top end. Yeah. Once you start mincing, oh yeah, you got to check the cam timing and you got timing chains and you got you got to shim the valves. You got to take the cams out to do that. People are like, no, 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 no. But that's second nature to you because the automotive side, right? Yeah, it's it's yeah, and plus from work from growing up working on cars. I mean, I was a car mechanic my whole life. Yeah, that's right. You know, basically, I started working on my on cars in my dad's shop when I was nine years old. Oh, wow. So I've been, you know, so yeah, it's pretty basic stuff for me. Mm-hmm. Um, the fuel injection is another thing that kind of threw things into a loop that people don't understand. You start talking sensors and injectors, and then you tell people, oh, you have an electric fuel pump at the gas tank. They're like, they're like, what? <laughs> What do you mean yeah. I have electric fuel pump in the gas tank? You know, because electricity and gas supposedly don't. But, you know, cars have been doing that for years. Mm-hmm. So people get kind of, they got kind of weird about all that. But, but the fuel injection has been a great thing. I mean, carburetors, they're such a, compared to a fuel injection system, carburetors are so, if you let the bike sit for a month. Yeah, it gets gummed up. It gets gummed up, especially mm-hmm. with our gas that we have these days with all the ethanol. Where fuel injection doesn't seem to bother. I mean, you have to let it sit for a long time to to have the the gas kind of hurt anything. Yeah. Because you can let a fuel injected bike sit for a year and it'll start right up. Mm-hmm. You know, a carbureted bike, no way. Yeah. And they're pretty dependable. I was worried about the sensors and all this stuff when they first came out, mm-hmm. but they're pretty dependable. I mean, they don't fail very often. Is it easy for you to diagnose a fuel injected four stroke? Like if someone brings it in, it's all oh, it just quit. It won't start. Like, do you have a list of things in your head that you check first, second, third? Yeah, well, obviously, first thing you check is always the fuel pump yeah. to make sure the fuel pump's pumping fuel. Mm-hmm. If it's getting and the injector's injecting it. If that's all working, then it'll usually run, but it might not run right. Yeah. And then you got to start looking at sensors, you know, throttle positioning sensor. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the coolant sensor. Coolant sensors will wreak havoc on those things because it'll tell the computer that the bike's hot when it's cold. Oh, and yeah. it'll do all kinds of weird things. But... But they're pretty durable, and now nowadays the newer ones, you know, they have a little light, and it'll yeah, flash, it'll a, flash a it'll code. flash a code, and yeah. then you can just look in a book, and it'll tell you which, you know, oxygen sensor is not given the proper whatever. It'll tell you exactly where to go, just mm-hmm. like a car. 
Yeah. You know, I'm waiting for the day they have one universal tool like the cars do where you can just plug, plug it, it in, in and it'll, tell you, what's and wrong. it'll tell you what's wrong. Yeah. You know, which I'm sure it's coming. To, I'm sure it's coming to that point, just like I'm sure oxygen sensors are going to be at some point stock on the bike because mm -hmm. the fuel injection is somewhat adjustable a little bit, you know, because it takes barometric pressure, manifold temperature, water temperature, throttle position, mm -hmm. and it can kind of adjust a little bit. But until you have an oxygen sensor, it can't fully adjust. Yeah. yeah. You know, once they have an oxygen sensor, then it'll adjust. You can go to Mammoth and not worry about it. You can do things and it'll, it'll automatically give you the perfect air fuel mixture. Yeah. You know, it's funny is I was listening to you talk about this troubleshooting of four strokes. I remember with my two strokes and especially my old three wheelers, right? I remember if it wouldn't start, first thing my dad was, does it got spark? First thing always, right? Yeah. And so we take the spark plug out and hold it against like the cylinder nut, do the kickstart and spark. If it didn't spark, he's like, well, maybe the ignition's got no spark. Shove a screwdriver in there and hold it and see if it shocks you. <laughs> he said that to me. I'm like, what? He goes, nah, just, just put a Phillips screwdriver up there and hold it and push the kickstarter. It's like, gosh, shock the hell out of me. That's funny. I used to have a mechanic that that's how he always checks spark. He yeah. didn't mind getting shocked. I'm like, you're crazy. I <laughs> yeah. I, I think I have so many like awesome memories of working on things with my dad and, and uh, like that, that's, that's a definite highlight. One of those things. Yeah. But I remember he had these big, you know, he was, a he owned a body and fender shop. So he worked with his hands his whole life. Mm -hmm. and, and I've inherited his hands, these big square hands. <laughs> And I remember he couldn't ever compress the ring on a two-stroke to put the cylinder on. Yeah. So he'd be trying to hold it with a screwdriver or something and doing it. And then, you know, when I I remember Ross telling me he'd have to go out there and hold the rings for my dad for the bull tacos and stuff. But, yeah, so that became my job when I was a little Put bit older. Hold the rings years. in place. Yeah. Well, back then it was kind of cool. A bike came in that didn't run. There was three things. It's spark or fuel. That yeah. was it. Spark, fuel, compression. It, it had to be one of those things. Yeah. Well, nowadays there's a lot more. So you, know, much you still more, have to right? have spark fuel and compression, but there's a lot more things that can be Go causing on. it. Like yeah. a valve being tight can cause low compression. Uh, you know, there's so many other things. It could be a sensor that's causing it not to have, get fuel. Mm -hmm. It could be, you know, with the spark, it, sh it was sparky. Could ECU, you know, state, or it could be a lot more things. I mean, back in the old days, it was points. Yeah, you know, points. Points and condenser. If, yeah. the, if the points were bad, then it didn't have a spark. You'd have to adjust the points, you know. And do all that to get it to have a spark. Yeah. But it was basic. I mean, fuel, compression, spark. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, uh, okay, I know that in the SoCal area, right? Like the, especially the vet clubs, old timers, SoCal old timers, or I think they're called something else now, right? Vet um, racing. Vet MX or something. Vet MX. But, but over the whole gang, them, you have a huge following. And the old REM with Frank Thomas and, um, have you been able to branch out? Like, do you have any uh, customers throughout the nation? Like, that sounds sense stuff to you. Um, you know, I used to I used to do more. Yeah, I do have customers that I ship stuff to. Mm -hmm. I used to have a lot more when I used to. Um, I don't know why I used to because when Cycle News was around, used to see run my, out ad in the back. Yeah, yeah, I used to run out in the back. I used to get a lot more. But you're right. I I don't know how I ended up being the vet guy. Yeah. But um, probably because I ride. With over the hill gear, you're very timers. active. You're, you're yeah. racing, you know. And I race Saturday motor, which used to be REM. I race Saturday motocross at Glen Helen all the time. Yeah. So, and I think it, it makes them 
you know, because it's true. A lot of my business is old timers over the hill gang and those mm -hmm. guys because they see me at the track all the time. Yeah. And I think it gives them a comfort that they know they can come up to me and get my help and doing all that stuff. Um, I would, I, I need to start going to you guys' race, the swap motor races, mm -hmm. to get the younger crowd back. Because I used to, when, when I used to go to Saturday, Sa Saturday Paris, remember yeah. after the Saddleback closed, it was always at Paris mm -hmm. on Saturdays. That's how I ended up working with Mike Chamberlain and Don Upton, and I used to do Larry Linglogel and Mike Metzger. I used to, at one time, yeah. I did all those guys in suspension. Yeah. Um, and it was all from Paris. Yeah. You know, so I, I need to start getting back out to the younger you know, and I go testing a lot at Glen Helen on Thursdays, and people see you out there, and I think they know. I think they like the fact that I still ride, yeah, and that I am, I'm there. Like on Thursdays, I'll get a lot of people to just come up and, hey, can you check my sag? Can you help me with my clickers? And, mm -hmm. You know, and then yeah, at the races, I get a lot of. You know, usually every, almost every time I go to a race, I bring bikes home from the track, <laughs> so I kind of make sure yeah. when I go, I don't have anything in my box van but yeah. my bike, because I know I usually end up bringing some home. Yeah. So uh, you recently relocated to Elsinore, mm -hmm. just around the corner from here. You used to be in Fullerton? I was in Brea. Brea, okay, right. Because I know that you were the Fullerton death loop uh, <laughs> assassin on your mountain bike. <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> but uh, has the move out here affected your business in a positive or negative way? Um, I would say I definitely am starting to get more work from this area, for sure. Yeah. I get a lot of work from Temecula, Elsinore, and I do try and go over to the track quite often when mm -hmm. they're open sometimes i don't even ride i just go over there because mm -hmm. it's right across the street from me yeah and i don't you know, help people with their sag and whatever i tell people hey if you want to if you need tires oil whatever i'm so close I'm, yeah so you uh you like stock some product and sell stuff right yeah i have a little nice. accessory department i pretty much carry all maxima I carry some spectro a lot of oils i have a lot of oils mm -hmm. and sprays and lubricants and stuff like that i, I stock tires tubes I have a pretty good supply of tires and tubes, yeah. and yeah, and then and then I'm a parts unlimited and Western Power Sports dealer, so I can pretty much get anything. And usually, if it's in a local warehouse, one day. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people don't know that they don't know that I am a dealer for all those companies. Yeah, well, that's cool. I need to come over and check out the shop. <laughs> I know we've been saying it since I, we moved here yeah. to our our Wildemar office, but uh, is it pretty amazing to you that uh, you know we were just talking about people don't, not checking their air forks, but like. I have so many friends, you know, not immediate friends that test for me and stuff, but like that don't even check their sack. Okay, case in point, scrub daddy, right? <laughs> if I don't set his sag for him, he doesn't check it, doesn't do it. He just adapts to it. Like, oh, well, it, it kind of kicks here, so I'll lean further back. Yeah. You know, like you've encountered that a lot, I'm sure. A lot. Um, most people, they don't realize how important sag is. Yeah. Um, I try to explain it to him as it is the single most important part of your suspension. It, if you can play with your clickers all you want, you can get all your revalving done, all your stuff done. If, you're, if your sag is way off, the bike will never work right because it not only sets the back shock at the right height, it sets the whole geometry of the whole bike. Yeah, yeah. It sets the angle of the forks. It, it has to do with, you know, the um, rake and trail is mm -hmm. affected by sag, cornering, stability, all that stuff. So. The number one thing you have to do first before you start messing with clickers is make sure your sag is right. Mm -hmm. You know, and I know some people like 100, some people like 105, and a lot of it depends on the bike. Some bikes like being a little lower in the back. Mm -hmm. But I say it's personal preference. You know, the range is 30% of the overall travel is where you kind of want to start, yeah. which usually puts you at about 4 inches, about 102, 103 millimeters. 
But then there's a personal preference to that too. Like yeah. you could go 98, you can go 105. I've heard of some people going to 108. Mm -hmm. So there is some personal preference. But yeah, you got to make sure that's right before yeah. you start messing with. See, you, uh, you addressed that. You said personal preference, right? Because there's definitely manufacturer recommendations and stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, I know the 23 Yamaha right now, the 450. I know that they wanted, well, yeah, in way, in way jacked up in, the in Florida, when we wrote it first, I wrote it with 95 millisag. And I remember I couldn't touch the ground. And I was like, hey, did you set it for me after Foster? Because he weighs more than me. And I, I can't even touch the ground with both to toes. And they're like, no, 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 95 works great here. And then we got the bike back out here at Kauia for our shootout. And I was like, what's my sag? And they're like, 100. And I'm like, oh, whoa, whoa, why is it not 95? Or what changed? But I mean, I don't know what it says in the Yamaha manual, but Preston and Togarski were saying 100, and the front fork was set at 7 mil up in the clamps. And uh, in the shootout, I was asking for different changes, and they wouldn't do it for me because I was wrong. Because it was head shape. Okay. After the shootout, I went back to Kuya, put the forks at 4, and set the sag at 105. Best bike I've ever ridden, you know, yeah. but it was untrustworthy the way they had it set up. Yeah. So, yeah, personal preference is definitely uh, key, right? Like, oddly enough, I like a KTM 450 set at 108, you know, but then I don't like that on the, the Husky. You know, I run 105 on the Husky, yeah. but I don't know. Yeah, well, I'm sure your brother's told you this too. Suspension is all personal preference. Yeah. A lot of it is there's no, there's no magic... Um, I know some people think there's like a magic chart that suspension people follow that tells you what <laughs> valving to put in for what weight and what there's really not. So it's, it comes down to testing and knowledge and just time and experience. And then what really helps me is if I, if the guy I know, if I know the guy and I've seen him ride, I know how he rides Yeah. because some people like it a way different. Like you can take a guy, two guys that are the same speed, same weight and set their bikes up identical. One guy might love it, the other guy might hate it. Yeah. And they're and you say, Well, why? They're the same. Well, because this guy, maybe he was an ex BMX rider and he likes a stiffer feel. You know, some mm -hmm. people say that to me. They go, I like to feel the track. I like to feel the bumps. And other people say, I don't want to feel nothing. <laughs> I want it to be plush. Yeah. So there's you you're dealing with that constantly. You're dealing with that's why when you you I really like them to say, you know, they give me the you know, and the I have them fill out a work order because they say, Hey, how much you weigh? What class do you ride? I'm gonna be honest. You know, because a lot of people, <laughs> honest, a lot of people will say they're faster than they really are. Yeah. And um, you know, and then what kind of riding you do makes a big difference. Like mm -hmm. if you're only gonna go to Elsinore where it's flat and jumpy, or Paris where it's mm -hmm. not very rough, you set it up you can set it up a little bit firmer, but you got some guy that's gonna ride Glen Helen where it's choppy and rough. Yeah. You know, you can't get away with stiff. It's gotta yeah. be it's gotta be it's gotta absorb. You know, but not be too soft, not blow mm -hmm. through the stroke. But yeah, you get guys all the time, and a lot of that's personal preference, and a lot of it's, you know, do you ride on the back of the bike? Do you ride on the front of the bike? How tall mm -hmm. are you? You know, all that, all that. You comes should into almost play. ask for, uh, you know, with with it being so predominant with phones now, say, text me a video clip of you riding, <laughs> so you can, so you can see. see. Yeah, because it, it really does. Like if you get a guy that's six three, you know, that leans over the back of the bike. Well, you know, you know, right off the bat, you have to run a stiffer spring, yeah. and more in the back because he's gonna when he leans back. Like me, I got short. I mean, we're small, we're short, yeah. yeah so way we don't more move. leverage for a tall. Yeah, guy. we don't move a lot. Yeah. So you get a guy that's tall and 
it's weight bias to the back, weight bias to the front. There's a lot going on, you mm -hmm. know, and you have to account for that. And there's just, there's a lot of stuff. It's not, it's not as straightforward as people think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's funny because riding and setup wise, Glen Helen is a mystery to me, right? Like I struggle there. And I've talked to Ross about it before and he goes, ah, just, if you get your bike working bitching at Glen Helen, it won't work good anywhere else. <laughs> I'm like, that's ah, kind of true, right? Because, like, I had my my uh, bike set up for Glen Helen. Like, I, I soften it and I speed it the rebound there. And I went to Paris today. I was like, what is wrong with my bike? I'm like, yeah. oh, and I changed it for there and I put it back. But, yeah. but yeah, it's uh, I think the average person, too, uh, is more apt to just go, oh, stock sucks, send it off, instead of exploring the capabilities of the clickers and, and preload and stuff on your bike. Yeah, and even even when you do somebody's suspension, they won't touch it. <laughs> they're, well, you're the I'm good. like, yeah, they think, well, well you, you did the suspension. It should be perfect. I'm like, well, the clickers are there for a reason. Yeah. I mean, they're like, the valving is kind of like the main thing, but then you have you can fine-tune it. You can make it really bad or really good just by a few clicks here and there. You have to play with those things so you know what they, you know. Then I, I usually try and give a little explanation of how they work because mm -hmm. like a lot of people don't realize i mean you know because you speed your bike up so you obviously know that your rebound affects your initial part of your compression mm -hmm. so if you're on a track that's real choppy if you open up the rebound it takes that initial compression and makes it softer so it's plusher yeah. you know and there's also things too you can't go too far if you go too far then it blows through the stroke mm -hmm. i mean but if you never experiment if you never play with the clickers you don't know how good it can be yeah you know, so a lot of times that's what I do with people when I go out on Thursdays. I'll help them set, the, you know, we'll play with clickers. And But you should you should always do that when you get your bike back because you should always, or even when you buy a brand new bike. That's what we do before we start ripping into them. We mm -hmm. take the stock bike out, we play with the clickers, set the sag, play with it, see what it really needs. Mm -hmm. You know, because you can make a bike work really good or really bad, just a couple clicks here and there. Yeah. You know, just like you say, you go to Glen Helen. Like, I got my bikes working really – my bike works really good at Glen Helen because I ride Glen Helen a lot. Yeah. And I, I just know when I go to when I go to Elsinore or Paris, I give it a, you know, probably a quarter of a turn more high-speed compression to hold mm -hmm. it up on the faces of the jumps. Hold it up in the jumps. I slow the rebound down a little bit, and it works great. Yeah. But if you don't do that, you're right, especially if you ride the REM track a lot at Glen Helen where you, ha you have to run your rebound quick because it's choppy. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, that won't. You know, then you'll leave, even the even the difference between that track and the main track mm -hmm. is different because the main track the bumps get bigger, yeah. and you're hitting them so much faster. Where the REM track, everything's so in and in and in, you know, choppy. Yeah. So even those take two different setups, but usually it's a couple of clicks here and there, and you can get them to work pretty much anywhere. Yeah. Okay. On a uh, personal note, like you're you're very blessed, I think, as I am, to have found a way to make a living in a sport that. 90% of people do as a hobby, right? Um, so what does riding at this age and at this stage of your life still mean to you? Like how often are you on the bike? And you still obviously race a bunch. Yeah, I try and race, you know, pretty much every weekend. Um, and I, I try to. I don't I don't get to do this all the time. But I like to go out once during the week. I try to, mm -hmm. which is crazy that I don't because I'm so close to Paris and I'm so close to Elsinore. Literally, I yeah. don't go for a couple hours and go back to work yeah but um it means you know sometimes i get a little burnt out and i take a little some time off but for the most part i writing is my stress reliever it's my you, know, you go out there and try and meet people try and drum up business and, mm -hmm. and it's just knowledge I'm, I'm constantly 
you know, playing with my bike. You know, I constantly try new things. Sometimes I'll lay in bed and I'll come up with this idea and yeah. oh, I'm going to try that. And I try it. Sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. It's just, it's just things you got to try. Yeah. You know, and I, I don't try things like that on customers' bikes, obviously. I always try it on my own bike. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes I come up with really good stuff and other times it's not so good. Yeah. You know, and, and riding, I think it keeps us in shape as mm-hmm. long as we don't get hurt. Fortunately, a big part of our sport is injuries. So I try to maintain the crashing to a, you know. <laughs> Self-control. Yeah. You know, I don't really try and, you know, I'm going to be 62 years old here pretty mm-hmm. soon. And and to still be feeling like I'm still in good shape, I think that has a lot to do with riding. I mean, I don't, people say, really, you're almost 62 years old? And, you know, I remember when my dad was 62 years old, he was retiring and he was sitting on the couch. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. nowadays we're still mountain biking and we're still you know, active just like when we were young, and I think yeah. it helps us stay young. Yeah, I think it's state of mind. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's really good for us, and it's good for it's good for the sport, obviously, because if you go to the races, I mean, a lot of the races. Well, I know you're. What's good about the Swap Moto Series is is it's bringing up all the kids. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a lot of clubs nowadays that are you go there and they have younger people classes, but it's all vets. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of vets. Um, the Swap Moto Series is is bringing up our young group. Yeah, our you know, kids' getting, classes are huge. Yeah, it's, it, mm-hmm. and we need that. We need to we need to keep the kids going and coming mm-hmm. up because um, they're the ones that are the future of the sport. Yeah. You know, without them, you know, it was just going to go away. Bunch, be a bunch of old guys. Yeah, but I, <laughs> but I, and I like, you know, working with the vet guys because they, they tend to have loyalty and money and, mm-hmm. you know, they're, it's funny because some of them are like, some of them are like 50, 60 and they're just starting. Yeah, you know they haven't raced their whole life; they're just getting into it. And I'm yeah. like, and I see the excitement in them, and it's like the excitement that I had when I was a kid. You know, yeah. you know, to, you know who uh, he's not around anymore. I don't know where he went or what he's doing. I just concentrate on business. He told me, but Dave Blunk used to just really impress me because he didn't start riding till he was forty, like first time on a dirt bike. He was forty, and he got fast, and he was super fast. Like he was wild and, and goofy, but. He was very impressive to me yeah. that he learned at a, a later stage of life. Like, like, you know, like typically you get older, you slow down. Yeah. And he was getting faster and faster and faster. But Because uh, he, he had that drive that we had when we were younger. Yeah. You know, to get to improve. And I see that with a lot of the guys that they might have rode when they were really little, really mm-hmm. young. And then they mm-hmm. quit for all these years. And now they're getting back into it. And they do. They have that excitement about getting better and practicing. And I'm like... These guys are like in their sixties, and they go like practicing and training, and they hire, yeah. they go take classes, and they, and I'm like, really? <laughs> it's kind of yeah. it's kind of neat to see, because you know we've been doing it for so long, it's just kind of normal. I don't really put that much, you know. I race and I'm competitive and I'm I, I try, but I don't you know train for it or I don't do anything. Yeah. But I, I like seeing the older guys that are so motivated. Yeah, it's funny because that's. And speaking yeah. of Dave Blunk, I still see him quite often because he has a shop. His shop is right down the 15, mm-hmm. kind of um, not too far from here. Okay. Um, my wife actually has a window covering business, so she does shutters and blinds. We actually mm-hmm. just got done putting roller shades in his office. Oh, okay. Yeah, and he, that's what he said. He just said the years he was racing, his business kind of went downhill. So um, I think some of it was his wife, too, putting her foot down, saying, okay, you got to get the business going again. <laughs> yeah. So I think he still has his motorcycle, though, and he always tells me. Yeah, guys, he bought Tom White's bike. Yeah, and he's like, if you guys want to go riding, I'll still go riding. Yeah. You know, I'm not going to race, but I'll still go riding. Yeah. You know, and he still mountain bikes a lot. Does he? Yeah, he still okay. mountain bikes all the it's time. It's funny because I was with him, and, like, 
Dave Blunk is that guy who, uh, like, I honestly thought, like, if he told me he was homeless, I would have believed him, right? Because his bike was always so clapped out and his gear never matched. And then, you know, I started riding mountain bikes with him and his, his, <laughs> he made a mullet bike before mullet bikes were a thing. He, his bike was a 26er, but he bought a 29er fork and put a 29 front wheel on it. Oh, wow. But his water bottle was a scratched up old uh, insulated coffee mug, right? And you know, I was just like, yeah. So I always used to give him gear and bring him stuff and everything. And then we're riding Oaks one time and he goes, yeah, we should just park at my house. That's my house right there. And it's this big mansion on the edge of the cliff, okay. and I'm all, that's and he, not and your he, house, And he owns dude. half the park down there. Yeah. And then so one day I'm like, all right, I'll park at your house. And lo and behold, it was his house. Yeah. So you could never judge a guy by his appearance of his bike. What's funny is the first couple times I worked on his bike, he would, in fact, the first time I worked on his bike, I gave him a bill. And he's like, I'm not paying that much. <laughs> he just flat out said, I'm not paying that much. And I flat out said, well, I'm not giving you your bike. Yeah. <laughs> So he's all, well, can't you give me a deal? So I gave him a little deal. And every time then I gave him a little discount. And then one time he had a barbecue at his house. So he had us all over his house. And I'm like, don't ever ask me for a discount again. Yeah, right? Yeah. Oh, you meet some uh, really colorful people in motocross. I mean, obviously, all of my best friends are because of the sport, you know. But uh, And most of them are really good people. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're really good. You know, all my friends from, from motocross are just really good people, even... Even my girlfriend says she meets him. She's like, "Man, you got a bunch of really good, there's a bunch of really good people." Yeah. And even when you go to the races, for the most part, everyone's nice, polite, kind. You know, you get mm -hmm. you get your here and there, but for the most part, good people. Yeah. Well, Steve, you're one of those good people, and I'm glad that we're friends. And uh, okay, Shock Therapy Racing website is the rep website is shocktherapysuspension.com. And your local phone number is. 714-724-9005. Oh, a 714 number slumming in the 951 here, huh? <laughs> well, I haven't changed it yet. I don't know if yeah. I probably never will, but but yeah. And then we are going to start using the STR Motorsports more mm -hmm. now because I'm trying to... It's always going to be shock therapy racing, but I'm just going to abbreviate it with yeah. the STR. Yeah. And I'm putting motorsports in there just because we do do everything. Yeah. Okay, so if you're listening or watching... And you're looking for someone to help you with your bike or do your suspension. It's always nice to rely on a guy that rides and races and has hands-on knowledge and experience. And, uh, yeah, I wholeheartedly recommend Steve here. Steve, thank you for uh, coming in, making the long trip from, like, down the block. Whole five minutes. Yeah. But, um, guys, thank you for listening to the Yoshimura podcast. And uh, we'll talk to you next week. Thank you. Cool. Easy, right? Yeah.